Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn and has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to season two of Pubs, Pints, People. If you don't know who we are yet, go back to season one. We have 20 great episodes for you to catch up on with everything to do with beer, cider, pubs and more. My name is Katie Wiles and I'm joined once again by Matt Bundy and Aunt Fiorillo. Hello guys. Hello. Hello. <laughs> We're back. Whoop, 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 whoop. I'll tell you what, it's great to be back. But don't you worry, everybody, we haven't been idle during our break, we promise. It was only a few <laughs> weeks off. Uh, and uh, we've actually been gathering loads of interviews and content for season two. It's chock full. It's marvellous. And we've had the chance to, to, to come together, so to speak, last weekend for the virtual GBBF, which we had a fantastic time at. It was amazing, wasn't it? Oh, oh yes. The VGBBF. I can't even get it out. Oh, <laughs> We yes. love acronyms at camera. <laughs> Certainly. It was blooming brilliant. Katie, Matt and I all had the privilege of hosting Q&As with Charles Fairham Hop Farm, Chris Maltz and Little Pomona Orchard, which were just fascinating, weren't they? And it sounded like you had a very merry weekend of it. I woke up on Sunday morning to about 20 chats and videos between Ant and our social media guru, Sean, who were nitroing cans of beer and getting up to all sorts to celebrate. I mean... Uh, Mary's probably putting it mildly. <laughs> it was, uh, it was. I tell you what, we did it. We did the GBBF, and we really, really tried to make it as as fun filled as what it would have been had we been down at the Olympia. Yeah, we went around to my mates, Tony. You know, I always mention Tony. We <laughs> we set it all up. I sent the pictures to you both, didn't I? You know, Tony really pulled up a, a trump for us, and we had all of these beers because there's a few of us that all camera members, so we all had a different box from the festival so we split all the beers and tasted them as a collective and scored them and chatted and it was brilliant i left about must have been about half past two in the morning on saturday morning and we did it all again (laughs) saturday afternoon for craft beer my body didn't thank me on sunday morning and poor sean really caught for it didn't he (laughs) He i feel like i I left out i basically had to rely on my virtual friends that i made on the virtual q a so I, <laughs> I didn't have anybody in the room or even in the house with me, but I had such a great chat with people. I didn't want it to end. It was an hour and a half and it flew by. And as I say, Chris Malt were fantastic. Can people listen to them back on the website? Still, yeah, or? so they'll be on the website over the coming weeks so people can tune in, watch those videos. I'm sad it's over, but fingers well, crossed I we'll be able so. to repeat the experience with the Winter Festival. Things aren't back and up and running by February. Who knows whether we'll be able to meet in person by then? Who knows? But I think we're all hopeful that 2021 will take a turn for the better and and hopefully that we'll be back down at olympia at least next year i can't wait for life to resume as normal we are going to have to keep a close eye on developments obviously last week there was the news that pubs had shut down in bolton again which is obviously devastating for those local businesses
resources. So camera's still running our Brew to You app and we've got the website with the pulling together resources. So if you are affected by local lockdowns, hopefully there won't be any further widespread ones between now and the recording, but check those resources if you can't go to the pub yourself. It must be so hard for those pubs and breweries in the areas affected, especially given all the time and money that many of them probably put into getting up and running again, the social distancing, the protection screens, the PPE. Mm. I probably imagine we'll see more instances of this over the coming months as well. So, so yeah, do keep the Brew to You page earmarked, folks. On a more positive note, it is Cask Ale Week, people. So make sure you are ordering cask, whether that's out at the pub or with takeaway services. I know some camera branches are organising events for a lack of a better word not physical events or festivals but we've got Letchworth Live and Stockport Beer Week as two examples for supporting Cascale Week so basically there's lots of activities and pub guides and competitions just to encourage people to go on their own to pubs and visit and support local pubs in their area for that week and I also heard some really cool stuff taking place through breweries speaking with Oakley Brewery earlier and they're running a drink out to help out scheme so oh If a customer spends any money on their beers in a pub, they'll give a voucher to match that amount of money in their web store. So you can get twice as much beer for the same cost, which is very fun. Wow, that's a great initiative. That sounds great. This week, we're learning all about family brewers, many of whom have been around for over 300 years. And let's be honest, they're the real stalwarts of the British beer industry. And we're going to be chatting with the man, the legend, Roger Protz, who was uh, also in the, the virtual GBBF, scheduled against me, I noticed, in the Q&A <laughs> schedule. I don't know who won on the viewing figures, but I, I would imagine Roger was, was uh, pretty popular. He's a legend, isn't he? Um, and uh, he's actually just released a new book on this very subject called The Family Brewers of Britain. As well as that, we're chatting to Stuart Bateman, who as you would see from the surname, is from the family brewer Batemans. We're also, as a special treat, going to include a short clip from Albert Johnson, works at Ross on Wise Cider and Perry Company, and he's going to tell us a little bit about what it's like to be a family cider producer as well. So we're back with a bang and it's a jam-packed episode, folks. So just for a reminder to all of our lovely listeners that season two is going to be running bi-weekly rather than every week, which should just give us an opportunity to get some more material together for you, really engage between the episodes and, and speak to you a lot as well. So stay in touch with us, keep up to date, just get us on our Twitter feed. The handle hasn't changed for season two. We are still at Pubs Pint People. Those of you who are already following us on Twitter will have seen that we gave you an opportunity to put forward some questions for interviews this week. So thanks for everyone who got involved with that and uh, hopefully you'll hear your questions in the interviews today. And for those who'd like to do it in the future, please just keep an eye out on that feed. Now, without further ado, let's hand over to Dean Barrett from the South Hearts Camera Branch, who has very kindly took on the interview with Roger Protz to discuss his next book. So over to you, Dean. Good morning, Roger, and welcome back to the show. Hello, Dean. Morning to you. I hear you have a new title, Britain's Family Brewers. It's due yes. out in September. Can you tell us a bit about it? It tells the story of the 30 remaining family brewers. And the idea came to me a couple of years ago because I thought, these are the unsung heroes of brewing in this country. There's been so much publicity in recent years about the the very small brewers. And good luck to them because they're innovative and they make some wonderful beers. But we tend to take the family brewers for granted. I mean, if you live, as we do in Hertfordshire, you say, oh, there's a McMullins pub. What you don't realise is that McMullins have been brewing since the middle of the 19th century. 
And like all the family brewers, they've been through difficult times. They've been through wars, recessions, the threat of invasion from Napoleon's France and so on. And they've survived and are still making wonderful beers. And just like the small brewers, they're developing new styles of beer. They're not just doing the old traditional beers, but they are producing a wide range of very modern beer styles for a younger audience. And I thought it was time to wave the flag and say how wonderful the family brewers are and how proud we should be of them. But most important of all, to tell their amazing stories because their histories go back as long as 300 years. I mean, Shepherd Neem down in Kent, founded in 1698 and been going strong ever since. And these are stories which I think are worth telling. Obviously, we're not going to go through all 30. Is Shepherd Neem the oldest in the book? Yes, and uh, clearly they weren't brewing Spitfire in those days. So do you know what their first beer was? <laughs> like all the brewers of the 18th and 19th centuries, uh, they were primarily brewing dark beer in those days because this was before the Industrial Revolution made it possible to brew much paler beers. So the staple beers of that time would have been mild, porter and stout. Well, that's interesting and probably something our uh, listeners don't all know. So... Let's move on maybe to say, how did you go about putting together the book? I had the uh, onerous task of visiting all the breweries, which took a lot of travelling around. And when I got there, I dug into their archives. Some of them had their own books, which were very, very helpful. I mean, Shepard Neem, for example, has about half a dozen books about the history of the brewery, which made life much easier for me. Some of the breweries had no history at all, so it was a question of sitting down and just interviewing people. Many of these older breweries do have either part-time historians or archivists who are full of information. And it was particularly wonderful to go around the actual breweries to see how the beer is brewed, because many of them are using technologies very different to the modern technology used by the smaller modern breweries. The classic brewery really has to be Hawk Norton in Oxfordshire, which is beautiful to look at. It's called a Victorian Tower Brewery because everything flows from top to bottom without the use of pumps. So you have water tanks at the top of the brewery. Then you have the mash tuns one floor down. Below that, the copper, where the, the hops are boiled with the, the sweet wort. And then finally on the ground floor, where they rack the beer into casks. So everything is just simple and logical, flowing from floor to floor. And they still have horse-drawn drays. They have horses, uh, one of which is called Roger. <laughs> I was <laughs> pleased to find uh, they still have horses that deliver the beer to, to local pubs. That sounds wonderful. Um, were there some major themes that emerged across all the family brewers? I think one of the things that struck me, which I didn't know until I started researching, was that they were not breweries stuck in little rural backwaters. They were very much up to date on what was happening in the, the wider world of brewing. For example, I found that Palmer's down in um, Bridport in Dorset, they were brewing India Pale Ale pretty early on in the 19th century. Again, Shepherd Neem and many of the other breweries latched on to the IPA revolution in the 19th century. So they were really keeping up to date with all the changes going on in the world of brewing all those years ago. And do you think that's what sets Britain's family brewers apart in the world of beer? Oh, yes. I mean, for example, if you went to Germany, you would drink the most wonderful beers in Germany. But most of it is all one style, which is golden lager. But there isn't the tremendous variety of beers uh, which you find in this country. I mean, the only other country I can think of with such a, a wide range of beers would be Belgium. But again, the Belgium styles are very, very different to our own. 
what we got here is breweries which began doing dark beers, porter and stout, latched on to the pale ale revolution in the 19th century. And then in the 20th century, they started to brew what is still the most popular beer style, which is bitter. Uh, mild went into sharp decline after World War II. Bitter became the most popular beer. Then lager came along and the smaller brewers didn't have the technology to make lager and they were threatened by the rise of, of the lager breweries. But they they have survived by sticking to what they do best, which is making good old traditional warm fermented ale as opposed to lager. What do you think was the most unique or wacky story you came across during the writing of this book? <laughs> The thing I came across which really fascinated me was the way in which many of these families have had tremendous rows and fights over the years. I mean, the most famous would be the Sam Smith's, John Smith's row in Tadcaster in the 19th century when John Smith left the family brewery and set up his own brewery just a few yards away. And he took all the equipment out, leaving his cousin, I think, Sam, with an empty brewery. So Sam Smith had to start all over again, buying his own equipment to start making beer. And both those breweries have thrived and survived. John Smith's paid the penalty. It's now owned by Heineken, whereas Sam Smith, of course, is very famously still independent and family owned. And there's been a very similar situation also in Yorkshire, in Massam, where there was a big falling out amongst the Theakston family, which led to Paul Theakston leaving and setting up the Black Sheep Brewery. And again, cheek by jowl with the old Theakston's Brewery, both producing about 60,000 barrels of beer a year, and both very successful. And they they have survived. I mean, the McMullins in, in, in Hartford, they've had their share of family upsets. There was almost a closure of the brewery after World War Two because of the threat of death duties. And some of the family members wanted to sell up. But others said, no, we're going to we're going to see it through. They paid off the death duties and kept the brewery going. So there are some really wonderful stories of breweries determined to uh, to keep going. One of the fascinating things about brewing in this country is how different each brewery is from another, that no two family brewers are identical. Whereas if you go to most breweries in other countries, they're using the same kind of technology, using the same ingredients. Whereas in this country, the family brewers have been around for a very long time and are still using tried and tested methods of producing their beers. But having said that, quite a number of them have scaled down to smaller breweries. Horn and Woodhouse in Dorset opened a couple of years ago a brand new brew house using all the modern technologies which you will be familiar with from Germany of louder tons to filter the beer and so on but still at the end of it producing traditional British style beers. Can we come right up to date and talk about the difference between craft ale and real ale? Do any of the family brewers have something that will bridge the divide for them? Oh, yes. I think another thing which impressed me was the way in which the family brewers have moved forward to attract younger drinkers by producing golden ale. Now, golden ales were first launched back in the 1980s by a handful of small brewers, um, and they started to produce these very pale golden beers, which they wanted to make to appeal to younger drinkers. They didn't have the technology to make lager. What they could do was to use very pale malt and very fruity hops. And they were able to produce beers which looked like lager, but didn't taste like lager because they were much more full of flavour and aroma. And they've been incredibly successful. And I think just about every brewery I can think of, every family brewery, is now producing a golden ale. So, Roger, it's been a pretty dreadful year so far with COVID-19. What does the mm. future hold for our family brewers with everything that's happened this year so far? I think the future is going to be tough. 
but they will survive. I've been very impressed by the way in which not just the family brewers, but all the brewers have really struggled through the pandemic, but have really pulled all the stops out to make beer available, either from tap rooms on site or doing local deliveries. Black Sheep up in Yorkshire told me that the sales of their beer had actually gone up by about 300% during the lockdown because they were doing so much bottled beer for, for home sales. And I think it is that determination to see things through. The brewers that we're talking about, the family brewers, they survived the First World War. They survived the Second World War. They survived the great merger mania of the 60s and 1970s when so many breweries were taken over and closed down. And they're going to survive the the pandemic as well. And they're going to go on producing really good beer for the future. So that great beer writer that follows after Roger Protz is going to have something to write in 30 years' time then. (laughs) Undoubtedly. Wow, there he is. Fantastic. I mean, you know, it's always great to hear the wonderful histories of the older independent family brewers. I can't believe Shepherd Neem started in 1698. Yeah. Can you believe that? I, did, I had no <laughs> idea when that far back. And I just can't imagine all the stories that there must have been over that incredibly long amount of time. Yeah, and actually that 1698 ale from Shepherd Neem is special. It's, it's something I actually fondly remember using as a beer of the week in season one. So you'll have to listen to the episodes to figure out which one that one was, listeners. You're right, Matt. It's great that throughout all of the changes over the years, technology, recession, wars, and even simply changing tastes, they've still managed to find a way to thrive and come out of the other side. I mean, I can't imagine it was easy. Roger has really brilliantly highlighted how things have changed over the decades and found some really interesting themes throughout his research. He was able to highlight some of the feuding families that managed to carry on brewing, such as the Smiths and Tadcaster in the 19th century and Theakson of Marsham a century earlier. And he actually described the Yorkshire brewers as especially prone to punch-ups. <laughs> <laughs> you can only imagine it, can't you? Yeah. <laughs> I also saw an article, actually, in The Observer about the new book, uh, where Roger identified the family brewers where women ruled the roost, such as Hester Parnell, who chaired St. Austell Brewery from 1916 to 1939. And apparently, I love this, she was so fearsome that when a chauffeur-driven car was seen approaching the brewery, workers would wrap out warnings on the pipes. Hester's <laughs> <laughs> coming! The Look boss busy. is coming, I love it, I love it. Don't just paint a picture for you, that. I mean, there's loads of interesting stuff here, so please make sure you check out The Family Brews of Britain by Roger Protz. It's available, of course, from the camera shop at a very reasonable price of twenty one ninety nine. Now, before we head over to the next interview with a family brewer himself, we've got a delicious recipe from Sue for you. She's back. She's back. (laughs) This week, she's provided us with a Walton pie with old ale. Oh, I tell you what, it sounds like a proper autumn winter warmer, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. Just just what we need as the weather is going to be turning. And hopefully we've seen our last heat wave. Uh, I can't I can't stand the heat, you know. <laughs> Give me a, a, a warm pie and a, and a, and a lukewarm ale any time. Perfect <laughs> weather for it. Uh, so, and she, Sue chooses to use the Battle of Britain old ale uh, from Chilton Brewery, which is just yeah. near me. Fantastic Chilton place. Brewery, absolutely. Another independent family brewery, which has been running for over 40 years by the Jenkinson family, right in the heart of the Chilton Hills, uh, which brews in the older, more traditional way. 
And although Sue uses this beer, you can use any dark amber beer, preferably one with a chestnut flavouring to replicate the pie. So it's a hearty root vegetable pie with the beer making up the stock for the filling and it just sounds oh, amazing. Yeah, you know that thing's going to reduce down and be sticky and delicious, don't you? <laughs> I feel a bit bad that we're not reading it out to you. You know, we're just salivating over ourselves. But in the show notes, that's where it is. Please let us know on at Pub Spines People if you give the recipe a go. Send us a picture as well. Uh, get salivating even more. And a top tip given by Sue here is to ensure that you read the recipe completely before starting as it may be trickier than it first appears. I love that. It's, I love that. <laughs> it's like morning. a master chef challenge, isn't it? I mean, oh, sometimes yeah. I need, do need to be told that. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. <laughs> yeah, you're an experimental cook, aren't you, Wazzy? You're just sort of a bit of this and a pinch of that. You're a wild <laughs> child. Uh, right, let's move on, shall we? Our next interview is run by our very own Katie, and she spoke with the current managing director of family brewer Bateman's, Stuart Bateman, Bateman by name, Bateman by business. Let's hand <laughs> over to Katie to learn more about life as a family brewer. Stuart, can you kick us off by telling us a bit about Batemans and how it got started as a brewery? We were established in 1874 by my great-grandfather, George Bateman, and he started brewing beer for the local farmers because we're very much in an agricultural area. And those farmers used to pay their land workers part in the crops that they picked, part in money, and part in beer. So that's how we really got started. And then my grandfather... Harry Bateman got involved around about 1918 or so after the First World War, and he made it into much more of a commercial enterprise, followed by my father, George Bateman, in 1953, started to build up an estate of pubs and also did various trading agreements with national brewers. So we came, became a brewer and a wholesaler. It's not all been plain sailing. We we have had our family struggles when the other side of the family wished to sell out their shares. Um, and that was in the late 1980s. And it took us three years to actually battle to retain our independence. I have to say that it was very much thanks to the campaign for real ale who, who kept us going at that time. We have reasonably thrived, that's not an oxymoron, since then, and have now got an estate of 50 of our own tenancies and about 400 free trade accounts. Jackie and I are 100% committed to brewing, and whilst this company is going, there is no way that we would ever come out of brewing. It, it, it is absolutely in our blood. Yes, we have pubs. Yes, we, we wholesale beer. But I don't like being called a wholesaler and don't like being called a pub company because we're a brewery and we're very proud of it. So how long has the brewery been in the family altogether? Since 1847. So we're coming up to our 150th anniversary. We are a family brewery. It is 100% family owned. Mm. There are no other interests at all. And I three children i have three children um two of them are very very interested in coming into the brewery um, one's done his training at marston's and the lane pub company and the other ones at university all looks good for the future now you said you're coming up to 150 years do you have any kind of signature brews that have really stood the test of time yes we have most definitely and that would be triple xb launched not long after our centenary in 1974 uh, the campaign for real ale judged it beer of the year in about 1986, 87, just as we were coming out of our struggles to retain independence. And it was judged premium beer of the year 
for three consecutive years. So that very much is jewel in the crown. And so it's had exactly the same recipe at 4.8% ABV, Lincolnshire, Yorkshire and Anglian barley and Challenger and Golding English hops. So that very much is the jewel in our crown, our Bateman's Triple XP. Has it winning all these accolades actually impacted the brewery and the beer itself? Yes, definitely. I, th- I think when it originally won the awards, as a company, as a family, we were we were on our backsides. I think if you speak to some of the older campaign real um, members, they will remember. It took three years to overcome or succeed with our, our kind of struggle to keep our independence. We did it all on borrowed money. There's no way we'd been allowed to do any investment for three years. So literally, the lorries were run down, the plant was run down, the pubs were run down, and we had to start again. A lot of people doubted we'd be able to do it because of paying an enormous amount of interest on the money that we'd borrowed. To have Triple XB judged premium beer of the year, it gave us a national presence all of a sudden and also was great for the morale of the, all the people that worked at the brewery. So it allowed us to start a network of wholesalers nationally. The height of our volume was about 30,000 barrels, of which 15,000 barrels was actually going outside the county because of the reputation that we'd gained through Triple XB. Can you tell us a bit about the rise and fall, and I guess the rise again of cask beer during that time? You say rise and fall, it, it seems to be <laughs> rise and fall, rise and fall, rise and fall. So, you know, the industry is quite circular, kind of 60s and 70s when the National Brewers basically decided they want to destroy cask-conditioned beer. Mm. And we have, therefore, the keg versions of Watney's Red Barrel, Trophy, Tankard, Tartan, and they very, very nearly did it. If it wasn't for the campaign for real ale in the 1970s, then I, I think those national brewers would have succeeded. It really, really impacted upon us. And I can remember at the time, my father actually purchasing a second-hand milk pasteuriser from a local farmer to try and pasteurise our cask-conditioned beer. And although it was a nice beer, our cask ale from Racking has about six weeks shelf life on it unbroached but our keg beer after it'd been pasteurized it only had about 10 days shelf life on it so that was not a great success you know cam- camera and the awards that we won helped us to re-establish car scale keg beer came back in a slightly different format which was nitro keg beer and that started to gain a hold but i think I wasn't too concerned about that really because I think what it did partially was it it got people got younger people from drinking lager to drinking a keg beer and then the next challenge was they would move on to onto cask conditioned beer and then cask ale comes back again at slightly blonder in color citrus style hops and then craft beer has become much more of a fashion in terms of it being a keg style of beer as opposed to a cask style of beer. But I think what craft beer has done, whether it's keg or whether it's cask, it has certainly started people talking about different styles of beers again. So it's great that people are talking about beer again in in whatever format it comes in. Were there some real big storms over the years that you had to weather? Our battle for independence in, in the 80s was extremely, extremely traumatic. We've had to adapt the business I don't want to get too much into progressive beer duty, but we have to face the fact that progressive beer duty has significantly impacted our own volumes. Last year, we outturned at about six and a half thousand barrels. 
our height, we were at 30,000 barrels. We've had to redirect the business because there has been a certain amount of small brewery relief that has definitely been used in reducing pricing which has meant that brewers of our size at the time, there was just no margin left. So we've pulled back significantly from national sales. We used to do our maximum national sales about 15,000 barrels a year. Last year, we're about 1,200 barrels because we, we just can't cope with the pricing that's out there. So I think there is an opportunity for small brewery for progressive beer, beer duty to be reviewed. What I'm hoping it will do, it will give all of us including the smaller brewers, the opportunity for growth. How has COVID impacted the brewery? We're all in the same boat. You know, it has been catastrophic to say the least, to suddenly be told on, I think it was it March the 20th, about two days before your pubs are going to shut down and to go from building up to a very, very healthy projection for Easter trade to having absolutely nothing, disastrous. I had to stand in the brewery yard and explain to all of our staff that I was very sorry that a small number of us would keep battling on and we'd do our best to reopen the brew when the time was right. From 75 staff, we went down to about six of us who have continued to work between five and seven days a week to keep the brewery going, which has been challenging to say the least. We have made an extremely good comeback, I would say, and are trading at over 80% of what we were last August. Sales of our own cast conditioned beer have been extremely good. I think things will revive a little bit after people have got used to the fact that kids have gone back to school, people are getting prepared for the fact that furlough scheme is going to finish. Very, very sadly, we are facing a number of redundancies here. We just want to make sure that we survive. We're not grumbling. Everybody's in the same boat. Every brewery's in the same boat. Every business in the same boat. You've just got to do what mm. you can to keep going and make sure that you try and look after your people as best you can at the same time. If somebody's interested in one of your beers, whereabouts are you located and where else might they be able to find some Bateman's brews? We're still doing a reasonable trade through the supermarkets nationally. Pubs are 50 pubs are about 100 miles from Waynefleet, which is where we're based. So we're based five miles south of Skegness, which most people think is in Scotland, but it isn't actually. It's in the Wash. And our pubs go round from North Lincolnshire across to Doncaster, Rotherham, down through the Derbyshire Dales, Peterborough, and then across to Great Yarmouth. Great stuff. Do you know what? It's amazing to think the brewery has been around for 150 years, you know, and we said that about the last one as well with Shepherd Neem. It's this each generation has been happy to carry on that tradition and keep brewing within the family. I think it's one of those few professions, I suppose, where you see that so prevalently, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it sounds like they've seen it all. And it's amazing how many brewers point towards the brewery takeovers of the 70s and 80s as the most tumultuous time for them, even more than, say, the world wars or recessions and things, which is quite amazing when you think about it. It's really great to hear what an important role that camera actually plays in helping those breweries throughout those times and the huge impact that winning a camera award like the Champion Beer Britain can have on bringing them to prominence for people. 
I like how Stuart describes the beer industry as circular. It's kind of cyclical, isn't it? That the popularity yeah. of cask ebbs and flows. And Camera obviously had a huge impact in the 70s in ensuring it wasn't lost completely. Thank goodness. You know, and actually, it doesn't matter if craft is now more popular than cask at the moment. It's the point makes is the taste change. And it doesn't mean that people won't come to cask down the line in this cycle. Definitely. And I think he really hit the nail on the head, pointing out how exciting it is that people are chatting about different beer styles and care about tastes and flavors. It's much less about, oh, I, I only drink this brand and more about what do you have on the bar today and tell yeah. me a bit about it. And I'm, I'm really happy to hear that Stuart's relatively optimistic about the future post lockdown too. I mean, although it, it really doesn't sound like they're out of the woods yet, does it? And, and sadly, restructuring and redundancies may still be on the cards for many breweries. Seba have released new research which shows that independent breweries are putting off investment and growth following this proposed new tax system from the government which is going to see hundreds of small brewers seeing their tax bills rise. I've been diving into the stats guys in this survey. 58% of brewers surveyed said that they are delaying investment and 51% are delaying employing new staff. Yeah, and yeah. 49% are delaying growing their brewing capacity. Yeah. And then on the other side, just 4% of respondents kind of greeted the government's proposed tax changes positively. So it's not good news. It's not really what the industry needs no. uh, to hear right now. It's a really, really difficult time as it is without things like this coming down the pipeline. So camera members are encouraged to support petition, which is on the UK Parliament website which is calling on the government to reverse a proposed tax rise for small brewers. We have over 36,000 signatures, but we need 100,000 to trigger a debate in Parliament. So please visit the camera website and find out more and add your name to that petition today. Absolutely. I am proud to say that my name is definitely within that over 36,000 signatures. I signed it straight away because I'm a big, big believer that we need to look after this industry. Now, before we dive into the archive, we have a special bonus clip we want to play for you um, of a family cider producer. And it's a short chat from Albert Johnson, who is the fourth generation cider producer at Ross and Y Cider and Perry Company. So it's over to you, Albert. Hi there. My name is Albert Johnson. I'm the fourth generation of my family living and working on our family farm. Uh, and I'm from Ross and Y Cider and Perry Company. My family were already farmers. But we moved to this farm, Broom Farm in South Herefordshire, in 1930. There were already some trees on the farm, but they were mostly eating apples. Uh, although there is one peri pear tree, which we think dates back to 1825, so that's quite special. But it was took a long time for my family to get into apple growing and cider making. The first orchard we planted was in 1978, uh, and that came from an impetus from Bulmers, who at the time was still a family company, looking for more apple growers in the county of Herefordshire to supply them year on year. And then between 1978 and 2001, we ended up planting 45 acres of orchards for commercial use and about 10 additional acres. My dad's own interest in peri pear trees and standard trees of old varieties. And, and then it slowly grew from there. My my father and my grandfather together started making cider in, in the 1980s using the excess fruit. And in 2001, we founded the Cider Company. I've been involved for the last five years. Uh, and it's just really a huge privilege to be coming into a family business with an existing culture and values and indeed cider making success. 
and tradition. It makes a big difference, I think, to the language we're able to use as a cider company, the types of ciders we're able to make. We have a really defined style of dry, bittersweet ciders that are often single variety or fermented in barrel. And that's something that my dad's been able to develop over the 30 years of his cider making career. Uh, and now I'm able to come in and build on that. And I think that's our biggest sort of marker of what it means to be a family cider maker. It is to have continuity, which gives you a stronger connection to the trees. Obviously, because as well we're a farm, we're growing our own fruit. We're using trees that my dad planted and my granddad planted 30 or so years before I was born, some of them. Um, and it gives you a unique opportunity in that sense. To return to Bulmer's as a family company, founded in the 1890s by Fred and Percy Bulmer, introducing or reintroducing apple growing to Herefordshire after centuries of cider making in this county, bringing varieties over from France, bringing in processes and techniques from France uh, and propagating them around the county and then subsequent generations of the Bulmer's family doing that and then culminating in the founding of the Museum of Cider uh, in Hereford. It's a huge part of what goes on in this county in terms of agriculture and drinks production. It's amazing that my family has been involved in it for so long and that we're continuing to do it and hopefully we will be able to continue to do it for long long into the future. There we are. You know, I love a good cider story. You know, I chose cider, the cider selection as my uh, box from the GBBF. You know me, I'm a cider fan. And it, it's <laughs> great to hear the story. And I mean, there's something so unique about the cider producers in Hereford that have such a long, rich history in the region. Ah, I love the idea that his parents and grandparents planted the apple trees that he's now able to harvest and see the fruits of this family labour, literally. <laughs> and if you want to learn a bit more about Cider, Camera's supporting Discover Cider initiative, which is organised by the ciderologist Gabe Cook. And we've got Cider Month coming up in October, which is to help people learn more about Cider and Perry. Loads of exciting resources on the Learn and Discover pages. So have a look at our website and learn a bit more about cider when you get a chance. Now, before we finish up, we've got a quick dive into the archive. This week, we have an article written by Kate Oppenheim in 1993, which talks about the formation of a new group, the Independent Family Brewers of Britain. That's right, the IFBB or IFBA as I'm calling it. Uh, it's not quite as good as the Apple Committee, is it? I need to work out a, you know, an acronym that has a word in it. But um, it was actually formed with a number of objectives to support and promote the interests of family brewers, and that's in the UK and in terms of UK and EU legislation. And it was given a threat that the EC would tell breweries that they would need to limit their pub estate if they hit a uh, 200,000 hectolitre production limit. The article suggests that what started out as a joining together of Britain's family brewers actually created quite a stir. So many really suspected it pointing to a rift between the member companies and the Brewer Society, which was the traditional bastion of all brewers. Oh. I mean, it's interesting. There's some parallels to our situation these days, you know, with changes to tax for small breweries and uncertainty with Brexit. And, mm. uh, you know, the, the IFBA, you know, FBB, <laughs> is, I'm, it's going to catch on, I tell you. Um, it, it's still in action today, but we've, now, we've got 29 of its original 36 members, which is great, isn't it? It shows the, some of the continuity. And the main goal is simply to maintain the traditions of cask brewing in Britain. Well, don't forget to check us out on Twitter to view the full article, because, of course, we just, you know, cherry pick our, our bits together 
give you a flavour of it all, but you'll always find the full article on Twitter. Now, without further ado, I think it is time for the first time in Season 2 to call Last Orders. So, what are you drinking this week? Bearing in mind, we've just come out of the VGBPF. <laughs> yeah, I'm actually get, just going through still the ciders I was sent, and I'm drinking a Wally's Rocky Road Craft Cider. Now, they've all been fantastic in the case of Sam, but that and a real cracker, that one. Amazing. I'm, I think I'm actually going to have to join you this week, Matt. But I have to give a special shout out to a brilliant table cider that I was sent by Little Pomona Orchard. I hosted the Q&A with them at the VGBBF and they sent me this gorgeous bottle. It's got this really, really nice design on it. And it's a proper, you know, 750CL table cider that you can have. It's what is it, 7.5% ABV, but it doesn't taste like it at all. So it could be quite dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> but a really, really fantastic craft cider to try. And how about you, Ant? I bet you have been saving up loads of recommendations since we last spoke. It's literally impossible for me to just reel everything that we had over the past uh, couple of days uh, off because we had the first night dedicated to all of the real ales in the bottles the second night was all about craft beers which you know what as we all know are super flavor beers so, so you can't even compare the two but i tell you what i will do as i mentioned earlier on the first night we um we were tasting the beers and we were scoring them so the beer of the week for me to start off the season has got to be our overall winner from that night and Believe it or not, our overall winner out of all of those beers was a mild. Mm. Yes, <laughs> and the beer of the week for me is brewed by Drone Valley Brewery and it's called Candle Rigs. It's a strong mild, you know, it's 5.8%. But I tell you what, folks, if you had it in the bottle, if you had the dark spots from, from the festival and you were a listener, you'll know exactly what I mean. This thing blew our socks off. It was wonderful. We will be back on Tuesday, the 6th of October in two weeks time to learn all about low and no alcohol beer. Which I'm ready for, by the way. (laughs) I'm sure you are. (laughs) I mean, some of our listeners might be planning to take part in Stoptober. And if so, non-alcoholic beers and ciders is a great way to take part while continuing to support the pubs industry if you're going out. So we'll be chatting with Stuart Elkington, founder of Dry Drinker, which is an online retailer for non-alcoholic brews, as well as Rob Fink from Big Drop Brew Company, which is a non-alcoholic brewer himself. Well, as you know, at this point, I usually end with a quote, but I'm throwing it back to you guys, to our listeners. I want you to get in touch with your favourite quote. Tell you what, in the meantime, can I share one that I took from last weekend? (laughs) It was as simple as this. May the roof above us never fall in and may the people underneath it never fall out. (laughs) Okay. Nice. (laughs) Cheers. (laughs) Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. How does a free case of beer sound? Yes, you can grab a case for free courtesy of our pals at Beer 52 by going to www. 
beer52.com forward slash people. That's the numbers 52 in the 52. And covering the meagre postage cost of £5.95. And what's more, as a special offer for our listeners, they'll throw in two extra beers for free. So that's 10 unique craft beers. Beer 52 is actually the biggest beer club in the world. Each month, they send their members a case of beer from a different part of the world, and this month it's an absolute belter. Their great European road trip case takes in the best beers from across the continent. So try a crisp, refreshing Pilsner from Norway's Lervig Brewery and a monster 7.5 double IPA from Sweden's Derges Brewery. On the dark side this month, there's a smooth stout from Copenhagen's Tool. There's also beer from Croatia... Poland, Germany, Serbia and Austria, among others. And if dark beer's not your thing, you can choose the light-only case. Also included is the ever-insightful Ferment magazine and a couple of tasty snacks. And even if, after all that, you're still unsatisfied, you can simply pause or cancel at any time. So head over to www.beer52, that's the numbers 5 and 2, dot com forward slash people to claim your free case of 10 beers now.